Welcome back to another episode of Crush and Lemons. As always, my name is Ryan and I'll be your host each episode. As the old saying goes, when life gives you lemons, make lemonade. Here on Crush and Lemons, we're dedicated to sharing the inspirational stories of our guests each week who've persevered through life's challenges. On today's episode, we have two special guests. I'm joined today by Suzanne and Debbie, and they're going to share their story about how organ transplant brought them together in an unexpected way, and how a close friendship grew out of a tragic time in their lives. So now it's time to sit back, relax, grab some lemonade, and join Suzanne, Debbie, and I as we sit down and they share their story of how they were able to take their lemon moments and make their very own lemonade. So welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Crush and Lemons. As always, I'm Ryan, and to kick off our episode, I will let our guests introduce themselves. And this week, we actually have two guests. So I'll turn it over to them to introduce themselves. Hello, I'm Debbie Granger, and I am the mom of three children and four grandchildren. I was in dentistry for 37 years, recently retired, and now I speak with Suzanne Falter and have a lovely friendship with her. <laughs> you do indeed. And I'm Suzanne Falter. I'm a podcaster, speaker, and writer. And my focus is both queer fiction and I also speak about self-care and the power of redemption from crisis. So we, me and Debbie, for reasons you will find out, are mighty happy to be here, Ryan. Well, and I appreciate you guys taking time out of your lives to virtually sit down with me and share this story with everybody. I think there's a lot of people that will be able to relate to this once they hear more about the journey you both have been through and how it's affected your lives. Let's just dive right in. And if you want to kind of give us the background on the lemon moment, kind of start from the beginning and share any information that you think would be important for our listeners to understand what it was like going through your lemon moment. All right. All right. I'll start. And then uh, Debbie and I will toggle. And for me, the lemon moment was a culmination of several events that happened in the spring and summer of 2012 during which time the business I had come to San Francisco to start burned out because I was so overworked. I was a really driven, intense, and somewhat lost workaholic. At the same time, the relationship I'd been in ended, and with it, I also lost the new apartment I'd just moved into. So I quickly had no home, no relationship, and no business. And I was kind of, I live in the Bay Area, and I was driving around trying to figure out where to live, uh, had my stuff in storage. And then the extreme crushing lemon moment, or lemon moment, I guess, came with the death of my daughter, Teal, who was 22 at the time. She was living in San Francisco. She was an ethereal, light-filled soul who played her little guitar on the street and made money as a waitress. And her fondest desire was to be a healer. And she had followed me out to San Francisco to do what she called her healing work, though she didn't really know what it was. Uh, she was also epileptic. And the night she collapsed, I'd had dinner with her. And two hours later, I was standing in a hospital room looking at her in critical condition, having had two cardiac arrests. And her body was basically trying to leave. It was a very, very rare thing that happens to epileptics. 
and not understood called sudden un- unexpected death and epilepsy. But because of the way she died, which was six days on life support, carefully attended to by physicians and nurses, her body was able to be part of organ donation. You know, and at the time we were just so shocked. I was there with my former husband and my son, and we were trying to make sense of the fact that our beloved Teal was suddenly gone. And, you know, you really need to know that Teal's greatest driver in her life was her love for other people. She just loved other people. She wanted them around her. She wanted to travel all over the world connecting with all kinds of people. She just loved people. And she really, really felt she was a healer and she'd been given the gift of healing. And then she died. So when they asked us, do we want to donate her organs? Well, yeah, obviously. What else would we do? My son, he was not so sure. He's a scientific guy who ironically today uh, is an autopsy technician. But at the time, he was like, wait a minute, wait a minute, what are you going to do to my sister? And he asked a lot of questions. He was not at all sure. But it took him a couple of hours of really getting the facts and really processing what this choice was. And we gave him all the space he needed. And then he, too, agreed that it was what needed to happen. We walked away from that experience, grief-stricken, shocked, and not really knowing if anything, would come of the donation of Teal's organs. In fact, it was far from our mind, really. It was just this thing we agreed to do. I didn't really take it as something that was going to have a lasting impact. I didn't have space in my mind for that. I was just caught up in this experience that was like being in a car with no driver heading out into the dark. (laughs) <laughs> oh, well, I can I can relate to the non-driver there. <laughs> I can definitely relate to that. Who's driving? Yeah. Uh, uh, my daughter uh, was 19 years old when she started getting tired and lithless and had some just really strange, for especially for a 19-year-old, strange symptoms. Had to take naps during the middle of the day. And she had gone to the doctor a couple of different times with no diagnosis, the same guy that they kept setting kept setting her up with just kept telling her she probably gonna have mono or that she was just tired needed to go home and rest that kind of thing well finally I got I got tired of that and said sorry honey you're 19 and you're an adult but I'm going with you he started with the same well she's just tired and I turned her around and lifted up her shirt and I pointed at her back and I said what's the puddle in the back of in her back why can't she breathe why is she sleeping come on You know, this is just ridiculous. And I marched out to the front desk and told them that we weren't going to see him anymore. We had to find somebody competent. They had me across the street. And believe me, everybody knew that I was there that day. Anybody that was in 06. And they still remember I was there that day. I'm sure of it. Anybody who that was that was an ER or something, wasn't it? Well, yeah, it was across the street at the hospital. And within 15, 20 minutes, the ER doctor that was from San Francisco had diagnosed her and had her in a bus on her way to a big city to to have something happen because her heart failed and it had been failing for probably several months at this point and her BNP rate was 2500 at that point and the Richter scale is what I've always called it is a 150 to 4000 is how that's rated and by the time we got to the hospital and they did their thing and 
tried to, you know, say that she was, she's a 19 year old skinny girl. So they thought she was doing drugs and it was just an incredible experience to get through them realizing that no, you know, just help her. It was kind of interesting how they, how they treated that. But once they realize after doing all the tests and everything that she wasn't a druggie and that she was a, before that, a very healthy young lady and for unexplained circumstances, her heart has failed. Uh, she ended up at uh, San Francisco Pacific Medical Center with a guy who specializes in heart failure and transplants. And over the next several years, she fought for her life, basically, and had a pacemaker planted and replanted six times. She's very slender, so there was no muscle to hold it. So they had to keep putting it back in. And on the third third attempt, they had to like actually tie it into her body. And then the sixth attempt, she got a bacteria introduced back into her from the leads to the pacemaker back into her heart and threw her back into full on full on transplant or uh, heart failure. And she was sicker than she was the first time. And it took them about nine weeks. This is six years into it. it took her about nine weeks to get healthy enough to get back on the transplant list. And then it was about six weeks later that she had been sent home with an outside defibrillator a drug that she had to change every day or excuse me, weekly to keep her alive while we waited for a transplant call. About six weeks later, we got a transplant call and I was at work and basically rushed through getting out of there. And by the time I got home, it was a false alarm. Quite a rush of emotions there. And it kind of set me up to realize that this might not be so smooth. <laughs> so, but a couple of days later, we got an, another call and it was a match made in heaven as far as I'm concerned, because it saved my daughter's life. And I too had no way of knowing where those organs came from, but I was acutely aware that someone lost somebody they love, you know, or a group of people lost somebody they love. In the case of Teal, there was many people who loved her, but I didn't find that out until many years later. Um, but I was always acutely aware that somebody lost a daughter or a son or, you know, somebody. And that was always on my mind. She had eight hour, about a seven and a half, eight hour surgery the night of the transplant. And when I got into the room to watch her they have you set for eight hours to make sure there's no bleeds in your heart and make sure everything's okay before they take you back into another surgery to put another organ in. And, uh, cause these organs have to be used like in a, in a fashion, a, you know, pretty fast, fa fast fashion, but yet the patient who's taking them has to be able to receive them. So it's, it's quite the, the organ donation people are fabulous, just amazing, amazing people. Anyway, I got into the room and she had this, now mind you for six years, she hadn't had any kind of major circulation. Her nothing was working us at full capacity. And, and now she's got this heart pumping in her and I walked in and, and not only did she just look, her coloring look better, but she had this like sparkly flow above her body that was just incredible. And I just couldn't stop looking at her. It was crazy. I guess I didn't realize how gaunt and gray she had gotten over the years. And, you know, that was part of it, but yet there was just this ethereal, sparkly, I don't know. I felt like it was just this soul meeting soul kind of thing. You know, it was just really, really beautiful, just really, really beautiful thing. And then eight hours later, they took her in and she took the, uh, they placed the kidney. They actually add a kidney. They do not take the 
patient's kidneys. They actually add a kidney. So she has three now and they're all pumping beautifully and the heart works beautifully. And it was seriously a match made in heaven. It it really was. (laughs) It really was. She continues her healing path. (laughs) (laughs) So Debbie, you had mentioned that this was kind of a, a six, almost seven year process that you went through kind of watching your daughter trying to work with doctors and figure out what it was and and truly have an idea of what needed to be done for you what would you say was kind of your lowest point in that time span before you knew there was ever a transplant available probably a couple days after she was first diagnosed i just remember just feeling so helpless hopeless vulnerable, you name it. There's a stack of emotions that go with that. And I remember walking around the hospital pretty late at night, probably about nine o'clock. I was trying to get out of her space, you know, just let her sleep and go cry on my own because I was supposed to be strong and I needed to go cry. And I was walking around the hospital and just feeling just so bad. And I went into the gym at the hospital, the real big hospital. And I'd been walking for quite a while and I went into this gym and just kind of meandered around in there. There was nobody in there, but I meandered around in there and just kind of looked around. And when I walked out after having been in an empty hallway, there was a little old man sitting on a bench with an oxygen tank and a walker. And I'm thinking, there's no way I didn't see this man. And he saw me crying and I wasn't, you know, trying to um, hide my helplessness at all. And he saw me crying and he just looked at me straight in the eyes and said, everything's going to be okay. And I don't know why it hit me like it did. And I didn't really even have a conversation with the man. I was kind of dumbfounded at where he came from more than anything. But by the time I got back up to my daughter's room, I was I wiped my tears and told her to wipe hers because she was crying when I got there. And I said, honey, we're not going to cry anymore. You're going to get better from here on out. You're going to get better. And that's what we're doing. And she, okay, mom, you know, <laughs> she's 19 year old girl, you know, she's like, all right, I believed in you all my life. I guess I better now too, you know, <laughs> kind of thing. And that night she spiked a temperature. They put antibiotics on board and her heart stopped failing. It stopped failing. It wasn't healed by any, you know, stretch of the imagination, but it went all the way up to 4,000 that day. I mean, she was in severe heart failure, was going to die. And that antibiotics being put on board saved her. I've talked to a, a good number of guests on my show before, and a lot of them do say that kind of the attitude you have in a situation can really have an effect <laughs> on the outcome. So I love to hear that you had that kind of moment with that gentleman who kind of lit a spark in you. And that was kind of. That's exactly what it did. Yes. It just kind of made me go, you know what? It's going to be okay. And from then on, I visualized her in my future. I talked about the future. I talked about when you're this and when you're that old. And I did that on purpose and, and visualized it on a regular basis, her in my future and her being healthy and fine always from then on. I didn't let that slide back into my brain. (laughs) That was too scary. Kind of looking back towards Suzanne and your experience was a much shorter path as opposed to a six year. So because yours was a lot more abrupt, was there anyone in your life that was kind of your rock during the experience in those hours and following time when you did lose your daughter? Well, I'll tell you. The strange thing was 
that teal, in a funny way, was the rock. I mean, this is going to sound pretty ethereal and pretty weird to people. And I, and I felt blessed that I had had an amicable divorce with my former husband, and we, we kind of went through this together with our son. And we'd only divorced maybe six months earlier. I mean, it was like a pretty fresh thing. One of the things that happened for me was that when I walked into the hospital room and I saw her on all these machines and every inch of her body was just covered, covered with thermal wrapping and wires and monitors and there were screens beeping. And, you know, I mean, it was just like you can't imagine what an intense scene it is when they're trying to save someone's life like this. And she was in a coma, of course. I just had this profound knowing that... First of all, she would die, it would dramatically change my life, and that I had to become a better person as a result directly of this experience. I happen to have a pretty good spiritual practice, and I really relied on the knowing that everything really does happen for a reason. Not a religious person per se, nor was Teal, but I can say that that knowing that this was meant to happen really, really helped me. I never fought it. I don't even know why I didn't fight it. I just like went into it. And I remember a nurse, um, I was standing there looking at her on the bed and the nurse and, you know, the possibility was she was severely brain damaged because she had been in a locked bathroom for half an hour after her first cardiac arrest maybe 15 minutes, maybe half an hour. There was a tiny possibility she could have gotten through it unscathed, but almost certainly she had severe brain damage. And whether it was so severe she would have to be taken off of life support was the question. So this nurse said to me, it must be really hard not knowing what the outcome will be. Because of course the alternative was, you know, lifelong state as a, you know, vegetative state essentially. And I said this thing, I can't believe I even said this. I said, life is change. And I was like, yeah, okay, I'll go with that. Life is change. And, um, you know, the day before the collapse, Teal had called me and said, I think I'm going to have a really big seizure. And she was recovering from the flu. And sometimes when you have the flu, it messes with your meds. And she was well medicated, you know, for this condition of hers. And uh, I said, okay, do you need to go to the doctor or the ER right now? No, no, no. I don't want to go. They're just going to mess with my meds. And honestly, mom, I feel like it puts me closer to God. That's what she said. So then I said, well, what about this experience is connected to your life purpose? Which is like, what? Why am I even asking her that? But I did ask her that. <laughs> and she said, oh, thank you for asking me that, mom. I really want to help people with their anxiety and depression. That's what I really want to do. And I'm sure I feel really anxious about this. So this is my learning moment about my own anxiety. And um, she hung up saying she felt a lot better. So Teal herself guided me through this process. There are just so many weird little similarities between Amara and Debbie's situation and Teal and my situation. For instance, Am, um, 
Debbie, you've told me Amara's illness never really had a direct cause. There was no known reason for her cardiac, for her congestive heart failure. No, they tested her for, they took her hair, blood, urine. They took everything to try to figure out what was going on from autoimmune to, to everything. And it, it remained idiopathic. Although when they tested, when they put the antibiotics on board, it was because she had strep indicated in her body. So she could have for months had underlying strep, but they didn't really want to tag it on that because generally when you have strep, which my mother did, she, my mother ultimately died from heart stuff because of her valves. She, as a child had unre undetected strep, which became rheumatic fever. So, but that affected her valves. It didn't affect her heart at all. So they really medically, they don't want to say strep did that. I'm not sure why, but they just, no, 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 that doesn't happen. You know, but I, my whole, the whole time I've always thought it had something to do with that under, underlying strep. And, and the reason I brought that up is because the cause of Teal's sudden death was also unexplainable. Another crazy thing that happened was that, you know, Teal, the day after her collapse, she was about to start taking uh, courses at San Francisco City College in what she called her healing path. And, um, you know, it was things like astronomy and Native American rituals and, you know, stuff like that. But Amara, what, maybe three years later, actually became a student at the very same college, studying something she'd gotten interested in in the course of her illness. Right. She, from the very first time that she had an echocardiogram, uh, this girl is sick, sick. And she's like up looking at the charts and what's that? And how come that? And I mean, the very first one she had, and I'm just like shaking my head thinking, what the heck is going on here? And she does those cardiograms now. She's a cardio cardiac sonographer now. And if, uh, she was not headed medically before that. She definitely was not headed medically. And now she's full on smart little cardiology girl. <laughs> so. Well, and I love it because she, the, the, the program to go to was the one at City College. And they only take 20 people out of 200 applicants. And they, they chose Amara. And uh, to me, that's another example of Teal's healing path. I, I believe that too. She was, the, it's a lottery and she had a supposedly a 20 minute interview that ended up being an hour and she was accepted a couple weeks later. So I just really feel like maybe it was a lottery, but there was just intervening things that made her go to that school when she went. And, and incidentally, the, the cardiology program is through this, the same college, but it is also, um, through the same hospital that saved her life in San Francisco. She's at that program that saved her life, you know, that, and at the same school that Teal was supposed to go to. So it's just really, it's just really neat intertwining, <laughs> really neat intertwining between them. We, we met each other. We waited for five years to meet each other, which was kind of a cool thing because um, I, you know, we heard one year after her, after uh, Teal's death and the transplant, we got a letter from the agency that arranged the transplant saying, we will put you in touch with the recipients if you would like to know who they are. And we wrote a letter, Larry, my former husband, wrote the letter, sent it out there. And the only donor we heard back from was Amara. 
And we heard back from her a year after the letter was sent. She had spent some time, you know, collecting her thoughts, right? And um, she put her phone number in there and said, I would like to meet you. It would be my fondest wish. Thank you personally. And, and um, you know, I was like, great. So I sent an email with my phone number. And um, I sent it to the wrong email address. And I didn't find that out for a year during which I was grief stricken. You know, I spent, meanwhile, I'm spending two years, you know, like sucking my thumb, basically. I'm just, I couldn't work. I was just like totally in my little grief cave. And I was living in the guest bedroom of a friend's house and I was living on no money. And I was just like, it was like I was unplugged completely. Um, So I wasn't ready to meet Amara and she really wasn't ready to meet me. And it took us five years to actually meet. And then she was ready. I was ready. I was back to work. She was, you know, getting her education. And um, she suggested that Debbie and her meet me and my new wife at the time um, on Ocean Beach, which is where we had scattered Teal's ashes, which was the beach nearest to the home she was living in when she died. And uh, it was just, oh, it was such a great day. It was so reaffirming in your belief in humanity. I have goosebumps right now hearing that story from you. Amen. It definitely, uh, you know, there's just something about humanity and, and how it slips your mind. You know, it's like, are people really that great? And yes, people really are that great, you know, and it's just wonderful to see and hear and feel it. It is. It's just, a, I will forever be grateful forever. Yeah, I know. Now we're going to cry, right? Because we always cry. When we tell this story. I didn't even mean to do that. <laughs> oh, I know, Debbie, you always started. <laughs> well, this seems like a natural point to start transitioning over to the lemonade out of both of your lemon moments that have been intertwined thus far. Um, so let's kind of start looking forward and see how this story continues as lemonade for both of you. Well, um, my daughter survived. So my lemonade started right away. <laughs> you know, really, it did. I, I started stirring that stirring that pot right away going, yay, lemons. And and since then, I've had some really interesting things go on. But my, my son was in a terrible car accident. And then my uh, then he was diagnosed with type one diabetes and my house burnt down in the Paradise Campfire. Um, so, yeah, I've been through some stuff since the lemon started, you know, but I came out on the other side and and I'm I'm good. I'm I'm really good. I have managed to see the the blessings in my life and I made it. You know, I'm here to talk about it. And Life is good. Life is good. I love that story about uh, your hip. Oh, going out of the hospital for Amra. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> oh, a whole nother lemon. She was, she had spent six weeks recovering and we had to be, we didn't live close by, but we stayed at a relative's house that was close to San Francisco so she could have her weekly biopsies. They, they don't want you more than an hour away from San Francisco during the six weeks after transplant. But they let her out of the hospital in two weeks. So we spent four weeks at a relative's house going back and forth and, you know, back and forth. And the last uh, appointment that she had, they excused her to drive and told her, yay, you know, you're good. Everything's perfect. Okay, now I need an orthopedic surgeon for my mom. 
And they're all, huh? She hands us a card. She's kind of, she'd seen me limping around, so it wasn't surprising. She hands us a card and we go out of the, the hospital or the doctor's office and call them. This is my daughter starting on me. I keep walking. Mom, call them. It's like, can we leave the building? No, call them. I'm home. Okay. So I, I start dialing and, and she can hear, she's standing like right next to me. Like I'm going to hear this conversation. And the gal says, uh, Oh, I'm sorry. This man's retired. And you know, he's, he's just recently retired. However, we have a brand new doctor that's from uh, Chicago that did stem cell research. His, his qualifications are amazing, but he doesn't have a schedule right now because he just started yesterday and I'm all Huh. Can you come over right now? She says to me, (laughs) my daughter's in the background. Yes, we're on our way. Uh, (laughs) And the lady's like, huh? You know, like, no, that, sorry, that was my daughter. Yes. We'll come to the appointment. You know, she's like looking at me like, I will just beat you up right now if you don't say yes. So literally the girl's been away from home for six weeks and wants to go to stay in San Francisco to go to this doctor's appointment. So we go and, and of course this, this guy's super young and he walks out and I'm like, he's a child. (laughs) (laughs) My daughter says, Oh, so you'd rather have somebody with shaky hands you know, and she's just a smart aleck to me. Oh, it was just hilarious. The whole day was kind of funny, actually. So he comes back in and he shows me these x-rays and he says, lady, I don't know how you're taking any more steps. When can you be here? And he had me in surgery Monday morning. This was on a Thursday. Monday morning, I was in surgery having reconstructive on my hip. So, and she stayed in the hospital with me (laughs) (laughs) telling everybody what to do. (laughs) <laughs> Another great example of everything happens for a reason and you never know when the time will be right. Yeah. Oh yeah. It worked out really well for us. Actually, it's, it just, you're right. The timing was just the way it was supposed to be. And how I walked around San Francisco for those six weeks, every day I went for a walk all the way up Fillmore and down and all around and how I did that on the, when I told him I did that, he's like, just shaking his head going one step lady. And you wouldn't even have that bone. (laughs) It's like, okay. Yeah. A whole reconstruction of my pelvic area and everything. So it was just, yeah, pretty crazy. I've been blessed in my life with, with some, some guardian angels (laughs) for sure. For sure. So as we kind of shift over to our other half of lemonade, um, what would you say that is kind of your takeaway from all of this, Suzanne? Actually, both of us wound up in really happy relationships as a result of all the stuff we went through. I mean, I'll let you tell your story, Debbie, if there's time for it. But um, I think for me, uh, to get to that happy relationship, I had to reconnect with my values. I had to completely stop. I had to give up this business. I had to give up the quest for fame and glory and money and (laughs) stuff that it turned out was really pretty empty. And um, I spent a lot of time in nature and I spent a lot of time being very quiet and I discovered self-care. And since then, I've published a book and produced a podcast about uh, self-care, self-care for extremely busy women. And I was that busy woman And I dissolved back into a place of really grounded interconnection with myself. And out of that, I naturally attracted a wonderful, wonderful woman who is my wife now and has been for four years. 
You know, I also just feel like Teal's presence in my life is a result of that insight I got when she was dying that I had to really become a better person because that's who she was. You know, she was an amazing person. She just was. She was filled with light and love and always eager to help people, always eager to have an adventure, always eager to live life completely, no holding back, you know, didn't care about money, didn't care about fame and glory, just wanted to connect, you know, beautiful thing. And uh, Debbie and I found each other. And one of the things that we decided the day after we met each other is that we would go on stage together and we immediately started booking these speaking gigs, getting up in front of audiences and telling our story. Out of that, we have become very dear friends. And, you know, this podcast we do together is such a, I mean, first of all, it's an opportunity for us to just like hang out and have fun together. But it's also, it's Back to Happy is about this very thing of what we've learned about getting back to a place of happiness and joy and inner peace and grounding and feeling solid because that's who I am now. It's really, it's really pretty dramatic what can happen in eight years. I don't remember who I was before. I, I mean, I kind of remember some things and I'm like, oh, cringe. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you're a perfect example of when life kicks you, you you either knock, you know, fall down or you get up and you be stronger and you have gotten up and you are stronger. Now, thank you, Debbie. But I take so many cues from you and your your example of uh, really reinventing in a positive way and always going for the better thing as a result of the loss. Well, like I said, you know, I'm either going to fall down or I'm going to get up stronger. And I refuse to fall down yet. <laughs> I do. <laughs> Not yet. They can't take me yet. Yeah, I just I, I raised kids on my own uh, for many, many years and was single for well, almost 20 years, actually, almost 20 years. I was single raising three kids and there's 10 years between my two youngest. So for the, a while, the youngest was like having an only child and boy, was he a challenge. Whew. Yeah. <laughs> Ask him, he'll tell you. <laughs> <laughs> he, he knows he's, he's got a son now and he's realizing, oh goodness, I really was. So, but you know, I, I took a lot of time to, to be single and to realize my boundaries and what I will and won't do and put up with. And it kept me single for a long time because of that. You know, I just, I was not willing to not be a mom, you know, a lot of relationships, you know, well, you're doing this, you're doing this. Yeah, you're right. I am doing this. <laughs> I am at a baseball game. I am going to all stars. You know, that is what I did. And I was in a kind of a strange relationship for about four years, I guess, probably about four years, a very one-sided relationship that was like that, you know, why don't you this? And why don't you that kind of thing? And and I came to realization when my daughter was, when I was heading down to, to have her transplant and I called him to tell him and he said, okay, well, keep me posted. You know, it's like, huh? Keep you posted. And he went camping a couple of days later. You know, he just, it was just like, he was unaffected by my life. Like I would have been his. And it was just a real slap in the face for me. 
And probably about three days after our successful surgery, I finally left the hospital to go have a meal outside the hospital and leave her bedside. And um, he happened to call me and I was on the phone with him and and made it kind of short because it's like, you know, I was just kind of over it. You know, it's like, really, you just like not even here for me at all. And thought I hung up the phone and went into the restaurant to meet my sister and her man and sit down. And I laid my stuff down and proceeded to about everything that that relationship was not worth having (laughs) everything just from his selfishness to just everything. And I looked down and his name was still shining on my phone. And I, and just went, you know, just gently, um, you know, touched it to shut it off. And I looked up at my sister and said, he heard the whole thing. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> She's like, what? And I said, my phone was still on. And I thought, well, that, that solves some issues. I don't have to do that now. <laughs> and the next day, that was our conversation. He says, uh, so now I know how you really feel. It's like, uh, yeah, good. We're done. Yeah. So, yeah. So I just have really, you know, and now I'm in a great relationship that we've kind of been off and on for the last six years, I guess. And now for the last two two and almost three, um, we've been on. And after the paradise fire, we were in Cancun at the time and started talking about living together the night before I found out my house burnt down. Fortunately, it was the night before. And, uh, we were on a catamaran the day of the fire and he waited all day to tell me because every time he'd look at me, I was laughing or snorkeling or whatever. And finally we were headed back to the resort and he knew I'd have my phone or whatever and didn't want to be, he didn't want me finding out from somebody else. So he told me and he says, Oh, by the way, what we were talking about, you know, for next spring, you want to just move in when you get back. (laughs) So, and we've been fine. Everything's great. And he's a good partner and we're getting married whenever this whole, whenever we can. Congratulations. (laughs) Yeah. So, yeah. So he's a keeper. So kind of one last thing to touch on, and this is for both of you, reflecting on the experiences you guys have been through, if somebody else was going through something similar, do either of you have a piece of advice from your own experiences that you would share with them of how to get through something similar? For me, what I'd say is ask yourself, what do I need right now? Just do that a lot. Do that a lot. And then do your best to provide it. That's the biggest issue is don't just think about it, actually provide it for yourself. You know, if you need to go for a walk, go. If you need to check out for a day or two, do it. You know, whatever it is that that'll ground you, go look at the ocean for a day or two if you have to, you know, whatever it is that that charges your batteries or that sets you grounded again. Hug a tree, stand barefoot. We're so full of shoulds. We should be doing this. We should be doing that. And our body is screaming to us. No, no, no. Pay attention over here. Let go of that. What are you doing? You know, but we ignore it. We get squirreled all the time, you know, squirrel. (laughs) I can't even walk through a room sometimes without forgetting what I was going for, you know, so, so you can imagine that self-care is probably something that, you know, kind of gets shoved in the, in the drawers sometimes and you got to take it out and unfold it and take care of it. You know, wear that self-care. 
You've got a great uh, practice around visualizing, too. And you should share that, Debbie, because that is just plain inspiring, I think. Oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a good visualizer for sure. I, I, like I said, when my daughter was sick, I visualized her in my future. I, I kind of learn how to count to 10 and, and change my mind. You know, like if I'm <laughs> irritated about something, I can kind of, you know, breathe into it and go, no, think about something else. Don't be mad. That's stupid. That's petty. You know, I actually talk my way through it and, and visualize the better, you know, turn on the music, whatever it is that, that shifts that mindset, you know, cause we can get mad about the stupidest things. You know, if you think about it, we can fume and, and let our lives get all transformed over some really petty things and, and grabbing a hold of that and realizing that the little petty things in life really don't matter. It's the big stuff and, and, and being present for the big stuff, you know, just being present in your life as Teal would have said, just be just be. Just that was be. one of her mantras. That's right. Mm-hmm. Well, and that reminds me of one of kind of my favorite phrases is, and this is just a paraphrase of it, but you can't control what happens to you, but you have all the control over about how you react to what happens to you. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, with that, unless there's anything else you guys would like to add, we'll kind of start to wrap stuff up for the episode. Sound good? No, I, I think we're good. Well, once again, thank you both for taking time out of your day. I really appreciate it. And I've loved hearing your story all along. Um, throughout the entire story, there were numerous times where I had goosebumps hearing about how everything intertwined and how that you two have become such good friends out of this experience. So if our listeners want to follow along with your journeys... Um, what is the the best way for them to do that? Social media, uh, and obviously you guys have your podcast. So if you want to share that information for our listeners as well, yeah, we've got the Back to Happy podcast, which is um, on all your favorite podcast platforms. And uh, Debbie is firing up Instagram all the time, and I'd love to see you there as well. Yeah, that's also under Back to Happy. So yeah, I'm I'm learning. <laughs> An old dog learning new tricks. (laughs) And as always, uh, with all of our episodes, we'll put links to both your podcast and your Instagram in our description. So any of our listeners who are interested can get that information very easily and go follow you guys and hear more about your stories as well. Excellent. Thank you so much. Thank you for having us. Yes. Well, with that, once again, thank you. And I look forward to seeing how your story continues to grow and change as you both go forward. As always, thanks for joining us for another episode of Crush and Lemons. And a big shout out to Suzanne and Debbie for sharing this very personal story with us. And hopefully it'll help others who may be struggling with the decision to do organ transplant or how to react when they lose a loved one. If you want to learn more about this podcast, check out our social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Crush and Lemons and send us a tweet with ideas for future episodes. And if you or someone you know would be interested in being one of our future guests, send us a note to crushandlemons at gmail.com. Lastly, if you enjoyed today's podcast, please share it with someone you know and consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts or whatever streaming service you've listened to today. It really helps us grow. If you're dealing with your own lemon moment, just remember you're never alone. There's always other people out there who've gone through similar things. We look forward to sharing more stories with you in the future. In the meantime, keep an ear out for when our next episode drops and work to turn your lemon moments into your very own lemonade.